is amazing. This is Enoch alive near the beginning of the world, and he's prophesying about Jesus's second coming. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. This morning, we have the privilege once again to be in the book of Genesis, so get your Bibles out. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, one of Satan's tactics was to go after the extreme hunger Jesus had after 40 days of no food. He said, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. That passage was one of my favorite passages to read growing up as a kid. Satan's there. Jesus is there. We know Jesus is going to win. I always enjoyed reading that. How did Jesus answer him? Matthew 4.4, Jesus said this, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, and he was quoting from God's word to show the sufficiency of God's word. Yes, we must have food for our earthly bodies to survive. But greater than this, we must have God's word for our souls to survive. The writers of scripture often compared God's word to spiritual food. And Jesus himself said that he was the bread of life. And friends, we have a wonderful buffet in front of us this morning full of truth and wisdom that will nourish our spirit. And so let's thank the Lord for his hospitality this morning and how he has invited us to come and hear his very word. And today, we also have the added privilege of coming to his table to eat, drink, remember, and rejoice. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your help this morning. Desperately, we are frail We are frail in many ways. And Holy Spirit, we know that without you opening our eyes and ears and minds and hearts, we would come to this word and not understand it. We would come to this word with an attitude of cynicism and pride. So Lord, we thank you that in your salvation, that you have taken these things away from us. And now you've given us a love and a hunger for your word. So may we understand it. We ask that you would teach us well this morning as we come to eat and to feast on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we are in Genesis chapter 4. And today the plan is to finish chapter 4 and chapter 5, which will bring us to the beginning of Noah's story. And if you've been with us the last couple weeks, we've seen how sin has come into the world, and we've seen the fruit, the ugly, disgusting fruit that sin produces. In the murder of Abel, last week we saw five aspects of sin. We saw that sin produces disobedience, that sin ignores wisdom, that it breeds hatred, that sin always has consequences, and ultimately that sin separates us 
from God. But we also had the joy of seeing how the death of Abel points us to Christ. Abel's blood had no redeeming power, even though he was a righteous man. But the book of Hebrews tells us that Christ's blood speaks a better word than Abel's. And we have a lot to learn from the murder of Abel, but it's the murder of Christ, it's the shedding of his blood that truly washes away our sin. In today's study, we're going to see the legacy of Adam lived out in two of his sons and the very different paths that they took. One was in abject depravity and rebellion against God. The other was a pursuit of righteousness and a desire to truly walk with God. Today we have the Canaanites and we have the Sethites. And so the question is, is which family line are you a part of? Which family line do you belong to? If you would like to take notes, here is our outline for this morning. We're going to see the sinful line of Cain in verses 17 through 24. We have a little parenthesis, and we'll see a subpoint of the sins of Lamech. And then we will see the righteous line of Seth in verse 25 through the rest of chapter 5. And in that, there will be two parentheses, two subpoints. We'll see the righteousness of Enoch and the hopeful birth of Noah. So let's read chapter 4, starting in verse 17, and we will read through verse 24. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took not one, but two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Well, as we left off last time, we saw that Cain was removed from God's presence, that sin separates us from God, and this was enacted by Cain leaving the presence of the Lord, moving away from the presence of the Lord. It says he went into the land of Nod, and even that word, Nod, speaks to the curse on Cain because it means wandering in Hebrew, and it also has the idea of shaking or trembling, which shows the instability of Cain's life. The opposite of Cain's life is one of a believer. The psalmist reminds us about the rest we have in the Lord. Psalm 116, verse 7. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. This is the picture of one who is walking with the Lord. It's one of peace and rest. But conversely, when someone leaves the presence of the Lord, there is no rest, there is no peace, there is chaos. 
Yet, even in the midst of this separation from the Lord, we see that Cain still manages to have a family and build a city. And so there are two questions that come up at this point. First, who did Cain marry? And second, if he was to be a wanderer, how could he build a city? Well, to the first question, it's actually very simple. He would have had to have married one of his female relatives, probably one of his sisters or one of his nieces. And although we would recoil uh, at this today, the, the decay of the fall had not progressed to the point it is today where there would be genetic abnormalities. Uh, and there was no restriction at this point on marrying close family members. That didn't come until the time of Moses. It's mentioned these pro- prohibitions are very clear in Leviticus chapter 18. But remember that in Genesis 1, we have the command for Adam and his descendants to be fruitful and multiply. So there would be no issue with Cain marrying a close family member. Now, in regards to the building of a city, this most likely would not have been the size and the scope of what we think of when we think of a city today. And there are a couple of observations that we can make just in the Hebrew word itself. The the word has more of an idea of an encampment that was set up for protection. And so this goes back to Cain's fear of someone taking vengeance on him. And biblical scholars surmise that in light of his growing family, he wanted to have a safe place for them to live. Also, since Cain was no longer a farmer, it's very possible that he may have desired to set up a trading post of sorts. Now, none of of this is told to us explicitly in the text, so we are making a bit of guesswork here. But knowing the curses that were pronounced on Cain, this is likely very possible. Adam at this point is somewhere between 120 to 130 years old. And even conservative estimates would put the population at this point at around 8,000 people, which would be more than enough for Cain to establish some kind of settlement and uh, some sort of encampment for people to live in. It says he named it after his son Enoch, and this also tells us something, because in doing this, he, in effect, handed the keys to the city over to his son. His son was in charge of the direction of the city. And even the Hebrew verb here, where it says that Cain built a city, the tense actually has more of an idea that of an ongoing, that Cain was building a city. And it was something that he was trying to do and trying to do, but because of the curse, he could not finish it, and so he handed the keys over to his son. Enoch means, his, his name means dedication, and this is appropriate for Enoch, for this Enoch and for the Enoch that we will see in Seth's line. One was dedicated to worldly pursuits, and one was dedicated to the Lord. And so now as we get into both of these family lines, there's a couple things to note. First, you'll see there is an Enoch and a Lamech in both lines. And it's important to know that these are different people. Here in the U.S., uh, we have a desire often when we are naming our children to come up with some name that nobody else has. 
And so you find a lot of weird names out there these days. Uh, But in most countries of the world, it's not like that. When we were living in Russia, there's only about eight or so Russian male names, and that's it. You have Ivan, or it's pronounced Ivan in Russian. You have Andre, you have Alexander, you have Dmitry, you have Sergei, you have Daniil, you have Mikhail, and you have Boris, or in Russian it's pronounced Boris. Those, that's it. And so we had multiple friends that were all named Ivan, many Ivans, many Andres. Even in the New Testament, what do we have? We have Judas Iscariot, and we have Judas not Iscariot, to make that distinction. So we have righteous Enoch, and we have sinful Enoch. We have righteous Lamech and sinful Lamech. Now, Righteous Enoch and sinful Lamech, they were both in the seventh generation from Adam. And more detail is given for both of them. And so they stand out as the representatives of each line. Lamech stands out as the representative of Cain's line and Enoch for Seth's line. And you'll note that in the sinful line of Cain, we have a list of names. In verse 18, there's four names in one verse. That tells us something. It's just names with nothing else, no more details. But in contrast, as we move into the godly line of Seth, we have three or four verses just for one name, three or four verses for each name going into more detail. And so in this, we see the value that is placed on the line of Seth, which would eventually lead to the Messiah. Cain's line is listed rather quickly, showing very little value, mostly to point us to the depravity of sin. And to see this, let's move into that first subpoint: the sins of Lamech. And so there are several things to draw out here. As we see in verse 19, very obvious, this is the first time that we have polygamy in the Bible. It says that Lamech uh, took two wives. And so Lamech was the first person to openly defy God's design of marriage, the marriage institute of one man with one one wife. And we see Jesus reiterating this. Jesus affirming this in Matthew 19, in verse 4. It says, he answered them, and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is from the beginning of creation. And it's notable that this sin of polygamy came about from not Seth's righteous line, but from Cain's sinful line. But we know, of course, that unfortunately this practice spread. And we know of many godly men in Scripture who took more than one wife. They followed in Lamech's footsteps. Matthew Henry says that when a bad custom is begun by bad men, sometimes men of better characters are through unwariness drawn in to follow them. And the question of polygamy in the Bible is an interesting one. We see that God allowed it to happen, but he clearly shows us in Scripture that it was never of his design and that it causes problems. 
And we saw in Deuteronomy how God instructed kings not to have multiple wives or horses. And we see how that was played out in a very bad way with King Solomon, where his many wives and concubines turned his heart away from the Lord. In the New Testament, leaders in the church are instructed to be men of one wife, And in the most comprehensive passage on marriage in Ephesians 5, it speaks clearly of one husband with one wife. It's very clear, even through, though we see the sin of polygamy happen in the Old Testament. Well, the second thing we see is God's common grace to Lamech. And we see that in the birth of his children. Even in his sin, his children are famous for different things. We see four of his children mentioned here. And although they are praised for their ingenuity, they are not praised for their relationship with the Lord. In fact, the Lord is not even mentioned at all in this line of Cain. And that tells us that the line of Cain walked away from him. And another thing to note about these children. This is very important, and it goes back to the beginning of our study of Genesis. But these early people, these people were not cavemen. They weren't hunched over around a fire, grunting at one another. Uh, This is the lie of evolution that treats our early ancestors as imbeciles. And I guarantee you, probably most of us, anytime we think of people uh, a long time ago, there's probably an image of a caveman that comes into our brains. And that is because we've seen this lie being uh, just proliferic throughout society, both in, in media, in our textbooks, all over the place, even in silly car commercials. They're all over the place. But it's the exact opposite. We have here in these verses the invention of animal husbandry, the invention of music, and the invention of metallurgy. We would consider these people geniuses today. All of these folks lived before the flood. All of them that lived before the flood lived very long lives, we know. And they had much more time to pursue innovations in these areas. Derek, can you imagine playing the guitar for over 800 years? Imagine how much, how much better you would become. It would be incredible. Take any pursuit that you may have, any hobby, and imagine that you have over 800 years to work at it and the lengths and innovations that you would be able to come up with. Our ancestors ancestors were created in the image of God. They were very gifted people, and they had long lives to make use of those gifts. So anytime a caveman image comes into your brain, get rid of that. And remember, no, no, these people were very gifted. They were created in the image of God. So with Cain's children that are mentioned here, first we have Jabal. His name means stream of water. And Jabal is famous as a farmer of livestock and the father of all those who dwell in tents. So he must have made large advancements in this area. (coughs) Excuse me. And he was probably the first one to be a nomad of sorts, traveling along with his animals. And this, no doubt, comes from the curse that was pronounced on his father. And so he thought probably, well, 
if we are forced to travel around and not be in one place, let's see if I can come up with some good innovations to make this a little bit easier for us. His brother is named Jubal. His name means river. And they're very, Jabal and Jubal, as you can see, they're very similar in English. They're very similar in Hebrew as well. In Hebrew, they're pronounced Yabal and Yubal. Jubal was famous for inventing musical instruments, specifically both woodwind and stringed instruments. So Jubal brought some entertainment into their wandering. Then we have Tubal Cain. His name simply means just offspring of Cain. And he was the first blacksmith, if you will, uh, using bronze and iron. And this would require knowledge of mining and smelting different ore together. Very advanced. And then we have Nama, the only daughter mentioned. Her name means pleasant, and that's all we know. There's nothing mentioned about her. She may have had a very outstanding personality. That's why she is mentioned. We do not know. But what do we learn from the inclusion of these children? Well, as I said, they are known for their advancements in technology, but not known for walking with the Lord. So even those who have no relationship with the Lord are still created with the ability to make advancements and to make an impact on the world. But of course, we know that it stops there. They may gain the world, but lose their soul. Non-Christians, though, don't have the market cornered on this, though. We can trace many inventions and knowledge to believers as well. And so may we have more believers that follow in their footsteps. May we see many come with advancements and make very positive impacts on our world, but give the glory to God alone. The third thing we see from Lamech's story is his prideful unashamed, murderous poem. Look at verse 23 and 24 again. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So he speaks to his wives in a very braggadocious, prideful way. He's saying, listen to me. Come hear what I have to say. Look how manly I am. You have no need to fear. I killed a man just for wounding me. And those words, strike and wound in the Hebrew, mean that whatever happened to Lamech was very minor. Very minor. This isn't self-defense. This is really somebody living out what we see in Romans 3 verse 15 where it says their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This describes Lamech, a cruel, arrogant man who flies off the handle to show his quote-unquote strength, who defies anyone to come against him. And then he goes on comparing himself to Cain, basically saying, oh, Cain's got nothing on me. If God would come to avenge Cain's killer sevenfold, then he'll come to avenge me 77-fold. I'm that great. Well, the book of Philippians speaks of those who glory in their shame, but their end is destruction. This is true of Lamech. And it's true of all those who live in prideful rebellion to the Lord.
Well, it's here that Cain's line ends. In Cain's rebellion, he left his family with a legacy of pride and murder and ongoing rebellion. But now, starting in verse 25, we have the hopeful line of Seth. Look at verse 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Adam and Eve, they encountered much grief and suffering in their lifetime, all stemming from their sin in the garden. They no doubt mourned the death of Abel and the rebellion of Cain. And yet yet we know that God's purposes will always come to pass. (coughs) And so Eve gave birth to Seth, a replacement for Abel. The seed of promise, the Messiah, would still come, no matter what Satan would try and do behind the scenes. Seth's name means appointed one. And so here we see the start of the line that would eventually lead to God's chosen people, to the Messiah, and to the church. And we see that this this line is altogether different, and it's demonstrated by verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And I believe that God was working in the lives of these men. They had seen the fruits of sin through Cain and his sons, but now they are resolute in going the opposite direction, calling upon the name of the Lord rather than rebelling against him. And you've probably seen this in your own life. There have been sins in your family committed by your grandparents, by your siblings, by your parents. You've seen the ruin and misery that is caused in your family. And you've resolved not to let that sin repeat itself in your own life. I know it's true in mine. I've seen the destructive power of divorce in my parents. I've experienced the consequences of kids growing up in a home without a father. It's contrary to God's design. And so I've resolved, not my own strength, but with prayer and reliance on God's transforming grace to never let that happen in my own home. And I'm sure you have various different situations as well that the Lord has convicted you in. And so we see a change in direction. And this phrase that we see here, call upon the name of the Lord, that's used six times in God's word. It's used here, it's used twice in the Psalms, once in Zephaniah, once in Romans, and once in 1 Corinthians. Every time it's used, it denotes worship. And most often, it's referring to public worship. And so we see that those in the line of Seth were more focused in their worship of Yahweh. They started to come together publicly to praise the name of the Lord. And perhaps this happened on the seventh day, but however it happened, what it did is it sets up a divide between the Cainites and the Sethites, a divide between the world and those who belong to Christ, a divide that continues to this day. John 15 
verse 18, Jesus speaks of this divide. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Abel was hated because of his worship and devotion to the Lord. And we see that, how sin breeds this hatred that continues. We see it so often, even today. Well, now we move to chapter 5. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So in this chapter, we have the generations of Adam, starting with Seth and ending with Noah. And this, of course, does not list every son and daughter, but it only focuses on the line which will bring the promised seed. And these names are repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1, and also in Luke chapter 3, verses 36 through 38. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that the writers of the Old and New Testament accepted the genealogy as history, as fact, that these people really lived and that the Genesis account is true. And we must also approach God's word in this way. Well, as we begin, we have a review of the creation of man. And we have a couple things just quickly. First, we see that God created man, that man is not his own maker, he is not his own master, that God is the sovereign creator. Number two, God made them in his own likeness. Before the fall, they were holy, righteous, and complete. Of course, we know know that the fall destroyed those things, but we can, once again, be made holy and righteous through the work of Christ. Number three, God created them male and female. Pastor Pilgrim spoke on this at length very recently and how important it is to understand that. Number four, God blessed them. And it's very normal for us as parents to pronounce blessings on our children. We do it all the time. We do it when we encourage them. We do it when we pray for them. We do it when we speak of their future. So it is with God. However, it's a big difference when God blesses somebody versus when we, as parents, bless somebody, our children. As parents, we can only pray and trust the Lord. But God himself, he can command a blessing into existence. He can make it so in an instance. And that's what he did here. And then fifth, God gave them a name. He named them man, or it's Adam in the Hebrew. And Adam's name signifies red earth. So the name that we even have as humans is a constant reminder of where we came from and where we shall return, dust to dust. It says when Adam was 130 years old, he gave birth to Seth. But do you see the difference here in verse 3? What does it say? It says that Seth was born in Adam's likeness after his image. 
well, wait a minute. Isn't Seth an image bearer of God? Well, yes, he is. Of course he is. Every human is an image bearer of God. But this is written to show us the effects of the fall, that every human being is now born in Adam, fallen and corrupt. Seth, and then, of course, Cain and Abel as well. Seth was born a sinner. Adam was not. That's a big difference. However, we know that we can be born again in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. But, and this is something we know, but we have to be reminded that salvation does not transfer to our kids. Nobody is born a Christian. Balaj, he has told me a couple times that growing up in Hungary, growing up as a Catholic, he just thought that he was born a Christian because he was born into the Catholic Church. It wasn't until he immigrated to the U.S. and the Lord opens his eyes that he realized that that was not true at all. Nobody is born a Christian. And I appreciate what Matthew Henry says here. He says, grace does not run in the blood, but corruption does. <coughs> a sinner begets a sinner, but a saint does not beget a saint. There's another phrase you may have heard that God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters who have been adopted into his family. So we see here the curse that was pronounced on Adam back in chapter 3 is completed. Adam died. To dust you shall return, the Lord said. And so here's a question for you, and you can think on this in your own time. Do you think Adam and Eve are in heaven? If you do, what scriptures would you point to to show that? Or are there scriptures that point to the opposite? It's an interesting question, so I'll leave you to ponder that. But let's look at verse 6. We will read verse 6 through 20. When Seth lived... 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he had fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he'd fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Cain had lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he had fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he had fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. We'll stop there. And so we have the accounts of five of the patriarchs before the flood, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalil, and Jared. So we have no details of these men except the years when they had children and how long they lived. So we can only make just a couple general observations with this. First, 
we see that their lives are counted by days. It says, for all of them, thus all the days of, of, of Seth, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. So what does that speak to? Well, that speaks, once again, even in their long life, it speaks to the shortness of the life that we all have. And if living till 900 years old is, was still looked at as days to the Lord, then what should we be counting in? We should be counting in hours. Hours. Psalm 90, verse 12, gives us wisdom here. It says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's incredible. That wisdom comes from recognizing what a short life we have. I love the old poem that said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Well, the other thing to observe is that all of these men, with one exception, as we will see, died. And it doesn't matter how healthy, how rich, how good, how strong, they died. And in my study this week, I found a helpful table that gives us a visual to this. It's in the book of the beginnings, by Henry Morris, maybe a little hard to see. But this tells us a couple things here. We see a list of the patriarchs. We see the year of birth after creation. So we are believing that Adam was born in around year one. And then we see the age at birth of the next patriarch. So Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. And so we see that Seth would have been born in the year 130. And then we have the year of death. So Adam died at 930 years. And so that would have been year 930 all the way down until we come to Noah. And you can leave that up there, Chris, for a little bit. And this shows us a couple interesting things. First, all of the patriarchs, except for Noah, were alive at the same time as Adam. So they were very likely able to hear the firsthand account of creation and the fall, as well as the promised Messiah. This would have been incredible. Can you imagine knowing your grandfather to about, what is it, the seventh power or so? Great, 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 great grandfather? That happened because of the long life. And the other interesting thing is that this shows us approximately what year the flood happened. And we believe it was right around the year 1656. And how do we know this, you ask? Well, it also comes down to the significance of names. And names in ancient society told much more about a person than they do today. They represented something about the person's character or even the events that happened when that person was born. And so here, the next slide, we have uh, the list of names and their meanings. And so we see already, we saw that Seth means appointed one. We saw Enosh means mortal frailty. We see that Canaan or Kenan means smith. That would have been his profession. We have Mahalalel, meaning God be praised. We have Jared, meaning descent, descent into sin as we see the world going, possibly. 
We have Enoch as dedication. Methuselah, very interesting. We'll come back to this when it means when he dies, judgment. And then we have Lamech, conqueror. And finally, Noah, his name means rest or comfort. And Moses, he's the writer of Genesis. Now he gives us a little bit more insight into Enoch. And he's a very special man. And so that's our sub-point here. We see the righteousness of Enoch starting in verse 21. Let's read that together. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered uh, Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so remember, we have Lamech of Cain's line and Enoch of Seth's line, both in the seventh generation. And so they would have lived at the same time. And Enoch is the representative for the Sethites. And he's the example of righteousness and holiness. And so we see several things in the life of Enoch. We see that he walked with God. And Noah is also described in this way. And that's a phrase that we use today, don't we, to describe our relationship with the Lord. We often ask each other, how's your walk with the Lord going? It's used to describe who we are as believers. Before Christ, Scripture says that we walked in sin, following the course of the world, as Ephesians 2 tells us. There's a Latin phrase that you may have seen. It's quorum deo, quorum deo, and that means to live before the face of God. It means that our whole life revolves around our relationship with the Lord. It means that our wor- his word is our guide. It's our desire to please him, to be about his business in this world. And it also means to be a priest in his service, a servant in his service. The Bible calls us a slave of Christ, that we used to be slaves of sin. Now we are set free as slaves of Christ. In the Old Testament, the priest was described as one who walked with God, literally walked in and out before the Lord. So we see Enoch described in that way. And not only that, but we're also told that Enoch prophesied. And in God's great providence, we have Enoch mentioned in two other books of the Bible. First, we have him mentioned in the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15. Look at this. It says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy angels to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is amazing. This is Enoch alive near the beginning of the world, and he's prophesying about Jesus' second coming. What an incredible difference between Lamech and Enoch. Lamech is bragging about murder that he had committed. Enoch is walking with God and prophesying. And his prophecy would have been the first human prophecy in history. Excuse me, one moment. Enoch is only one of two people, Elijah is the other, that went to heaven without dying. 
And scripture is clear that he did not live like the rest. And God, in his plan, he did not die like the rest. We have one other passage that speaks about Enoch. <coughs> and that's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. He was commended as righteous. Walking with God pleases God. And it's only by faith that we can accomplish this. Well, let's finish the chapter with Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. We see this in verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. <coughs> well, there are two things that we can point out about Methuselah. And we've already mentioned the first, the significance of his name. After he dies, judgment is coming. And this was speaking about the flood. And so the reason we can know approximately what year the flood was, because we know the year that Methuselah died. It's incredible. The other thing, of course, that we often point out is the point of trivia, that who is the longest living person that we know of? It's Methuselah at 960, uh, 969 years old. Can you imagine living, knowing that judgment was going to come after you die? That'd be a little ominous and troubling. Maybe he lived so long because everyone was trying to help him live longer. No, just stay around a little bit longer, Methuselah. But Jewish tradition says that Methuselah died seven days before the flood came. But then we come to our last sub-point here. We have the hopeful birth of Noah. Of course, we know Noah is a major figure in God's story, and we're going to be with Noah through chapter 9. But first, we have his name. As we saw earlier, Noah means rest or comfort, and so his parents named him that with the prayer that their son would bring them relief from the curse. And I think there's two ways to look at this hopeful statement, statement from his father, Lamech. You could look at it in a general way, the hope that all parents have in their children. Every parent's desire is that their children would be a blessing to them in their old age, that they would follow the Lord, that they would have children, and that they would help take care of us when we are old. But I think there's a deeper point here as well. It seems that if Noah's life was special and that his purpose in this world was prophesied about, Maybe they thought that he was the promised seed, possibly, but it's more likely 
that the relief that Noah brought was the salvation of mankind out of the flood. That's what was prophesied about. We also see Noah again beginning the pattern of bringing proper sacrifices to the Lord. We'll see that in the coming weeks. The work the Lord allowed Noah to do prevented the future destruction of mankind. And we end the chapter with the birth of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is put first as the one who would continue the line of the Messiah. And Shem means name. And that signifies that he was to carry on the name, the line. Now, Ham, that means exactly what you think it does. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's pronounced Ham in Hebrew, and it means hot. And Japheth means opened. Opened. And so this morning, friends, we've seen two family lines. We've seen the Cainites. We've seen the Sethites. The line of Cain started with murder and lies, and that only perpetuated in those that came after him. The line of Seth, though, was marked by a new time, a time when they were calling on the name of the Lord and coming to him in public worship. The high point of Seth's line is Enoch, who gives us the example of one who truly walks with God. And we see the hopeful birth of Noah, who is God's chosen one to lead the world through the greatest punishment mankind has ever known, but will also be the recipient of one of God's greatest promises to mankind. And I asked you in the beginning, whose family line do you belong to? Cain's line represented those who are still in abject rebellion against God. As Ephesians says, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Seth's line, though, is marked by faith in God, which is counted as righteousness. And as we saw, as we looked at Cain and Abel last week, we saw the big difference between Cain and Abel was Abel's faith. Abel had true faith in God. Cain did not. And so as we close out our time here this morning, as we look forward and as we move into a time of coming to the Lord's table, I want to remind you of the very next verse in Hebrews 11, right after Enoch is mentioned. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Right before this verse, Enoch is commended for having true faith in God. But then the writer of Hebrew addresses all of us, saying without faith, it is impossible to please him. Faith, trust, belief, these all go together. And it's impossible to please God with anything else. Religion does not please God. Nationality and heritage does not please God. Good works in and of themselves do not please God. It has to be by faith. And the first step, of course, is to believe who he is, how God has revealed himself in his word, that he's not some nice grandpa in the sky. 
He's not some policeman whose job it is to make your life miserable. He's not the absentee God who got everything started and now just kind of watches behind the shadows. God is not pleased by belief in any of these idols. No, he rewards those who come to him in penitent faith. And the reward that God gives for faith is our salvation. John 3, 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. For faith, we receive forgiveness, a new heart, eternal life, joy, peace, love, heaven, and much more. And so that's our prayer for you this morning. As believers, may we rejoice once again in our salvation. But if you are here and you know that you have not repented and trusted in Christ, living as part of the line of Cain leads to ultimate destruction. So we implore you to repent and trust in Christ this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. Thank you that we can come and feast on it, be taught by you, Holy Spirit. Often, Lord, we come and we look at a list of names and we're tempted to gloss over them or think there's not much to learn. But, Lord, we know that's not true. You put these lists of names here for us for a very important reason. And we saw this today in the difference between Seth and the difference of Cain, Lord. Thank you that because of the work of Christ, because we are now in Christ, we belong to the line of Seth, that we are part of God's family. We are heirs, spiritual heirs of what was promised to Abraham. What a joy and blessing that is. And so we thank you for your word that grounds us in the gospel and unites us together. And Lord, now we thank you that you have invited us to come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.